Dubomatic with the dub Come come for nice up your dance all and nice up your club Flinging down some sweet rubber dub Easy squeezy makes no riot yeah, This my sound and we bury that My sound is the cream of the crap Dubmatic Yeah Dubmatic The original sound Fredrin Dubmatic's live and direct in a place called Toronto, Canada Dubmatic Rancho Calling, calling, Dubmatic Toronto, Canada You come out Big up, big up, big up, Dubmatic Welcome back to another edition of The Basement Sessions and on this week's show, in fact, for the next three weeks, I'm going to be looking at Studio One and the man behind it, Clement Cox and Dot. It's going to be done in three parts and each part is going to look at a specific decade. So this first one, we're going to be looking at the years from 1959, which includes his very first release, to 1969, just before things transition into what's going to become Roots and then Rub-A-Dub and Rockers and on and on, the continuous evolution of music in Jamaica. And it's Studio One that had such a transformational impact on the music, having been involved coming out of the Mento, into the Ska, to the Rocksteady, to the Roots, and on and on. They were there for every significant moment in reggae. In fact, it was Studio One that actually changed most of the music along the way. I'm not saying they did it all, but he definitely had a major impact in each evolution of the genres. And what's remarkable is that during these decades, over 10,000 songs were released. That's what's estimated. It's hard to know for sure. But also, when you think about that, put into context of how many didn't actually get released, because you're always testing the songs at sound system events. That's how you know what works and what doesn't right from the people who are going to be your fans and the people who purchase the records. Before we really kick off, I just want to give you a brief background on Cox and Dodd and his history. So in the ner- so in the early 50s, Dodd's mother ran the Nanny's Corner restaurant at the downtown junction of Laws Street and Lad Lane. Customers would be there, Dodd was there, he would play records for them, and he got to see that interaction reaction from them playing music. This is the origins of excitement for Dodd in music and what its possibilities are. And during the same time, he's moving to the US, mostly Florida to work on farms as a crop picker. And while he's there, he's listening to jukeboxes, live bands, American radio, which showcased a lot of the new sounds, as well as the DJs had their own personalities, which plays an important role going forward in Jamaican music. And it's these experiences that laid the groundwork for Coxon's next step, which was to launch his own sound system. So around 1954, he built the downbeat sound system to play out at dances and events and this is the origins of what will become the Motown roadmap and while he's collecting all this music coming in the tunes that he does have get stale they get old they become common people want fresh material and as the rise of rock and roll occurs in the late 50s the production of R&B goes down so what are you gonna do you're kind of stuck in a position where a now you're kind of at the top you've overtaken some of the big sound systems that exist and those are like Count Nick, Woody, and Tom the Great Sebastian, who got his name from somebody else who said, hey, Tom, you're great. No surprise there. So there's a couple things you can do. A, you can steal one of your rival's MCs, that would be Count Machuki, and B, you can start recording your own music. But before we go into the recorded music, I want to take a quick look at Count Machuki because much like King Stitt, Count Machuki has a prominent role in the rise and evolution of the DJing style, the toasting style. In its infancy, there's not much to it. You're really the hype guy. You're there to get the crowd excited, maybe do some chatter between records, you know, maybe a little bit of ad-libbing, 
during the song, but really it's the song that's the prominent feature, not the DJ. In later years, when you hear Uroy and Dillinger and Lone Ranger and the others, they are the prominent feature in the song. But back then, they were the hype guys. What's interesting is that Count Machuki joined Downbeat Sound System around 56-57. It's somewhere in there. And his first gig was an Easter concert. And that's where he chatted on the mic while selecting records and creating what was going to be known as DJing. What he did do is tell you jokes. He mixed it with American Jive and Slang. And as he saw the feedback from the crowd, he would amp it up. And here's one of his first lyrics. If you dig my jive, you're cool and very much alive. Everybody all around town, Machuki's the reason why I shake it down. When it comes to jive, you can't whip him with no stick. And on and on. Now, I'm going to play a track this from 1969 because he didn't record anything during that entire decade previously. And it wasn't until he recorded Scorcha in 1969 that you get to really hear him and what he's doing. So I'm going to play a little bit of this just so you get a sense of it. Then I'll come back and we'll get back to recording. You're listening to Dubmatics in the Basement Sessions and our look at Studio One. There's a little sample of Count Machuki on the track Scorcher from 69, and as you can hear, he's on the intro and little bits here and there, but not really as prominent as the DJing style would become. Now, going back to Cox and Dodd and his sound system, at the height of the sound system craze that he was involved with, he had as many as five different shows going a night, and each admission price was around 50 cents. Not bad during that time. He was also the pioneer of a tactic that's still used by DJs around the world today. And that is scratching off the label of record. Because when you got something that was fresh that the crowd liked, you didn't want anybody to know what it was. Because you wanted the exclusive and the people would come to hear it from you. If it's everywhere, they could go anywhere. And so right around this time, this is what I had mentioned earlier that R&B gave way to rock and roll, so that means there's less R&B available, which means that a solution is needed. This is when Cox and Dodd decides to get into the record business and start recording for himself. A, it has several benefits. He doesn't have to hunt for music anymore. He owns it. He can sell it. He can promote it. He has everything that he needs to make a successful label work. And that's where he launches the very first label called World Disc. This is 1959. And I'm gonna play the cut. That's his very first cut. And it's by a group called Clue J and his Blues Busters. Songs called Shuffling Jug from 1959. I ain't got no drinking jug. All you gotta do just run, come, let's do the shuffling jug. Thank you. 
Shuffling Jug by Clue J and his Blues Blasters from 1959. And just who were Clue J and his Blues Blasters? Well, many of those musicians in the lineup would go on to become legendary figures in music. Formed in the late 50s, the band was led by double bassist Clue J, aka Clue J, and the other members include Ernest Wranglin, Emilio Rico Rodriguez, Roland Alfonso, Theosophilus Beckford, Aubrey Adams, and Arkland Drumbago Parks. And it's Wranglin that would become Studio One's house arranger and also part of the group of Scatolites. And speaking of Scatolites, you don't have the name Scatolites without the word ska. And where does ska come from? Well, it's got R&B influences, it's got jazz influences, but it also has mento influences, which is native to Jamaica. And that is Jamaica's own music. So you get the fusion of all three of these and probably a few other things in there, but those are the core defining elements of it. And of course, the Scatolites were kind of, they are the guys. When you hear Scatolites, you know it's ska. This is also when Coxon launches Studio One. He sets up the studio in 62 and has his very first release in 63. And this very first release is considered to be the very first ska record. This is Theo Beckford, aka Theophilus Beckford, and Easy Snappin'. But before I play Easy Snappin', I want to play the Jolly Boys, because the Jolly Boys are part of the foundation of ska and every other genre that comes along in reggae. So it's important to acknowledge the heritage and history of the music. So I'm going to play a quick track here, just a snippet of the Jolly Boys in a track called Dip and Fall Back. The Jolly Boys formed in 1945 and we continue on well into the 2000s but what makes it very interesting is the instrumentation it's very stripped down it's maracas banjo rumba box guitar and vocals and that's what provides the backbone of kind of the ska rhythm not all of it but part of it and one of the things you'll hear is the maracas and in later years you're going to hear dennis al capone used it a lot of two-tone ska uses a lot and that's that chick 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 well that comes from the maraca sound even though it's done with vocals a lot of times so let's have a listen to jolly boys dip and fall back Real quick. So now that you've heard that, you can hear the maracas in there. When I play the next cut, which is the Theo Beckford song, Easy Snapping, you're going to hear that, but it's kind of the swing, that groove, that little skanky feel is there, but it's no longer on the maracas. It's moved over to the guitars. So let's have a listen to Theo Beckford's Easy Snapping, which according to legend is the very first ska tune ever recorded. Easy, easy, 
We've got Cox and Dodd's setup. He's got his sound system. He's got Studio One. Everything is rolling along. But how do you find the talent? So in the early days, he held auditions at his record shop, Coxon's Music Center, which would see the surrounding street full of people eager to hear and judge who was singing. And based on the audience's reaction, that would be the next singer he'd record. This was also a great opportunity when you have a crowd of people there to sell them new releases. So this kind of worked hand in hand. He's got the studio, he's got the record shop, he's got the distribution, and he's got the sound system. He's got all the elements of the Motown factory production line. And it was Coxon who created all of that, where he had the record label, the record shop, the dance hall system, and a way to access and get new singers. All the other producers would take that template and run with it themselves. And it was this structure that helped allow him to find new talent, but also, like I said before, to showcase new releases and see what was hot. So before he would actually release it, which you know you have the cost of the pressing, the art, getting it out there, he would test it at his own sound systems. And based on the reaction, he would either press it or he wouldn't. And one of these young artists, or groups I should say, was a great example of this test. And this is the Whalers Simmerdown. This goes back to 1964. And the band behind it was of course the Scadlights, the house band for Studio One at that time. The song went to number one in Jamaica and really set them on the map. And it was Dodd who looked at them and said, you guys look scruffy. He's the one that put the band in shark skin suits, made Marley the lead vocalist, and then offered them a five-year contract. So let's have a listen to 1964's Simmer Down the Whalers.
And of course, the song Simmer Down was different than all the other contemporary songs going on because it talked about social issues that were going on and specifically about the Rude Boys and the violence that was happening in the ghettos of Jamaica at the time. Now, continuing on, just in case you're wondering where Coxon got his name, because his real name is Clement, it's not Coxon Dodge, but it was actually back in the early 50s because he was a big fan of cricket and he was a cricket player and he was quite good. And one of the heroes at that time was Alec Coxon. So his friends gave him the nickname Coxon in tribute due to his cricket playing prowess. Now, it's hard to encapsulate a decade into an hour. And as I've talked about that for any special that you hear, unless you're doing a Ken Burns where you've got like eight hours to showcase these things, it's hard to pick the tracks. So on this show, I've tried to pick tracks that A, were either important about the message or the music or that changed the music or was simply because it was a hit. So the next song I want to play is a classic called You're Wondering Now. Now, Amy Winehouse did a version. And of course, most of us might have come to the original through the special version that was released in the late 70s, You're Wondering Now. This song is Andy and Joey, You're Wondering Now. This is the original. This goes back to 1964 as well. But what I want to do is I'm going to play just a quick clip of Amy Winehouse's version, then the specials, and then the originals. So you can hear its evolution, but yet remain close to the original. Have a listen right now. And this is the Basement Sessions with Dub Maddox and my look at Studio One.
The original and the classic Andy Enjoy You're Wondering Now, plus the versions of Amy Winehouse and the specials in there. On a side note, I've talked about the auditions that used to be held at Coxon's Music Center, but as he settled into Studio One, the auditions moved inside, in which Jackie Mattoo or Leroy Sibbles would audition and then decide which artist to record next. In the early days, Jackie took on the role more so than Leroy, but that was only until the bass started to play a more prominent role, and Leroy, not only being a singer but a bass player, started handling more of the additions. The thinking was every tune needed a bass line, but not every tune needed an organ. And Leroy Sibbles was probably the most important musician, arranger, band leader, singer, and studio manager to any label in Jamaica. On most of the tracks for a period of Studio One's 60s releases, he appears or has had a hand in almost every one of them. And I'll be looking at Leroy Sibbles and his ongoing contribution to music in the future as he's such an important figure in the development of some of Jamaica's biggest hits, yet not that well known or credited for it. So as I said, I'll talk about him another time, but for now, let's move on to this great track. This is a track by Slim Smith, I Will Never Let You Go. This is 1967. Now there's a couple of things that make this really interesting. A, you know the rhythm. B, this song has over 1,700 versions. That's 1,700 versions of this rhythm and counting. So let's just dive right into it and I'll talk a little bit more. Slim Smith, I Will Never Let You Go from 1967. Thank you. 
It's also been sampled 29 times by artists such as Stephen and Damian Marley, Josh Screechy, Super Cat, Brigadier Jerry, Sublime, Dillinger, and on and on. It's such an important song and it's had such a long history that it will continue on for years and decades to come. Now, I want to talk about two things. One thing that's really important to any label is its sound. You want to be known for that sound. If you hear Motown, you know its sound. You know the Stax record sound. You know the Wrecking Crew sound out of the out of LA. You know the Phil Spector sound. You know King Jammy sound. You know King Tubby sound. Everyone has a sound. And Studio One had its own sound. So here's a couple things that you should know about that. And this is as told by Leroy Sibbles. And here's what he had to say about the Studio One sound. A lot of that Studio One sound was possible from the way it was engineered. Even when it went to two-track, the way it was balanced hadn't changed because in the beginning he used to do all his own engineering and he knew what he was doing. He had bought two six-track mixers in New York and because he had so many channels, he could balance the instruments by giving them more than one track. He'd mic up the bass and drums to sound strong and fat and I think that was three channels for the drums and three for the bass and only one for the horns, which was the foundation for the whole Studio One sound. And part B, or part two I should say, is the house band. They are just as important as the studio and the miking and the engineer and everything else that's required to capture the music. And the house band at this point had changed from the Scatolites, when Don Drummond went to jail on charges of murder in 1965, to the Soul Brothers, to the Soul Vendors, and eventually to Sound Dimension. Essentially the same group of guys, but changing the name throughout the years. And this lineup included Leroy Sibbles, Ernest Wranglin, Jackie Matuve, and Gordon, Cedric Brooks, Leroy Wallace, and then other rotating members during this time. And one of the things that Coxon did early on, which was very smart, is he did turn this into a Motown-like factory where the band was there from nine to five, five days a week, recording rhythms, upwards of 60 rhythms a week. And the other thing they did had an immeasurable impact on the Studio One sound and the recordings was to pay the house band a salary. So rather than getting paid per side, which most studios did at the time, was very common practice, he put them on a salary. So of course, every musician wants that stability. You wanna know that you have some money coming in so you can survive and take care of your family and whatever other obligations you have. So to show the impact, when you put this all together, you have a great studio, great sound, great house band, and they're all on the wage and everybody's kind of happy. This is what you get. You get the track by the group Sound Dimension, which of course was Soul Brothers and then Soul Vendors and then Sound Dimension. Same guys essentially, and their song, Real Rock. Now, you'll probably know this song as Armageddon Time, and essentially it is. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna play you both versions. I'm gonna play the original version, Real Rock from 1967, and then a snippet of Willie Williams, Armageddon Time. And you know what the difference is? they only added the vocals on top of the track. So you still hear the horns and the horn solos and licks that run throughout the original. No real change, they just added vocals, but it became a massive hit both times. So let's take a listen to both versions right here on The Basement Sessions with Dubmatix and my look at Studio One.
have it the real rock rhythm and of course armageddon time with willie williams now i'm going to take it to this track that all of us know this is don penn's no 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 there's the 1994 version that we've all heard and it's still around in, in most dance halls and festivals etc like i've said for many of these songs it's still being played today now what's interesting if you look at the credits for this song you're going to see a name called willie cobbs and that's because he actually is, he owns part of the publishing and copyright for the song now because it's taken from his song, You Don't Love Me, from the early 60s. Now, he adapted his version from a Bo Diddley song in 1955 called She's Fine, She's Mine. Now, here's the lyrics for the Cobbs song, the Willie Cobbs version of You Don't Love Me. Then I'm going to read you the Don Penn version. So Cobbs version is You Don't Love Me, Pretty Baby. You Don't Love Me, Yes, I Know. Don Penn's version, You Don't Love Me. And now I know. Not exactly a smoking gun, but enough to get him credit and part of the publishing on this record because that's a very valuable asset to have. And especially when you look at just the UK alone, where it was certified silver, which is 200,000 in sales, plus you have all the public performances, which includes TV, film, radio, and live performances. That's a nice tidy sum of royalties to have coming in year after year. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to play a little bit of the Bo Diddley original, a little bit of the Willie Cobbs original, and then of course the Don Penn 1967 Studio One original, right here on the Basement Sessions with Dub Maddox and my look at Studio One. <laughs>
Well, you know how I mentioned earlier, that's not really a smoking gun. Well, there's your smoking gun. It's identical, and it continues on exactly how it's recorded by Don Penn. Yeah, it's a different groove, different band, but the concept, the main theme of the song is still exactly intact. So now let's take a listen to the 1967 version, and then I'm going to play a little bit of the 1994 version, just to hear them in context as they've evolved and they change, but still remain the same. Have a listen.
Versions of Don Penn's classic No, 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 the first one from 1967, and of course that one from 1994. Now, talking about Studio One and the different genres that they've gone through since its inception in 1959 on World Disc to where it is now, I would be remiss if I did not play you a track from Alton Ellis being the godfather of Rocksteady. And this track, it's of course I'm Still in Love, which everybody knows. It's a classic, but it, it's right in that sweet spot because Rocksteady was only around for about two years in popularity from 66 to 68. So it's right in the middle. And so let's take a listen right here, right now. I'm Still in Love, Alton Ellis, 1960. I'm still in love with you, girl. I'm still in love with you.
classic Alton Ellis. Now, if there's something about that song other than just it being Alton Ellis, it's because you might know it from this song. That's because that's Elthe and Donna's Uptown Top Ranking, which is based on the same exact rhythm as I'm Still in Love. Of course, that's 10 years later, so that's going to be in the next episode. So the last song I want to take a look at is by The Cables, and it's a song called Baby Why. The music would go on to be known as the Baby Why Rhythm, and it was recorded by countless singers over the years. And those singers included Freddie McGregor, Len Hammond, Prince Jasbo, Marcia Griffiths, and dozens more. So earlier on the show, I talked about how Coxon would scratch off the titles on the records themselves so nobody else could see them, so they would be exclusive to him and his sound system. I also talked about how he would showcase these songs to his audiences at the same sound system dances to get the reaction, which would help decide who got released and who didn't. Now, another tactic that he used was that he would actually just run a song on his sound system for as long as he could before pressing it and selling it. This was one of those songs. He played this for four months before he actually released it, building up the hype, building up the demand, building up the familiarity with the song so people could sing along. So when it came out, they could rush out to the store, hopefully his shop, buy it, play it at home, and of course, all the other sound systems would play it as well. So let's take a listen to The Cable's Baby Y from 
There's Baby Y by The Cables and also the Dennis Al Capone Baby Y version done a few years later back to back. So this concludes part one of our look at Studio One and Studio One Records. In part two, we see the label shift gears with the times and embrace the move away from Rocksteady's limiting theme of love to commentary about daily living and the emergence of roots and then to rockers and dub and everything else that comes along. We also see the introduction of young artists that will go on to become superstars, Burdick Spear, Dennis Brown, Sugar Minot, and many more. I thank you for tuning in. I'll be back again next week with another edition of The Basement Sessions. And you can download this episode as well as many others from my website, which is www, I know still doing that, basementsessions.com. And that's B-A-S-S as in bass, drum, bass, sound, bass, heavy, bass vibes, basementsessions.com. And you can join the mailing list as well. There's over 80 shows available. There's also specials on Lee Scratch Perry, Wacky's label, Two Tone Records, Dennis Bovell, and others. Now, taking us out, I just played you the Baby Y rhythm, and it's a classic. But I also have to share this one. My hero, King Tubby, doing his version of it, a dub version, and it is heavy. So that's what's going to take us out. Enjoy, and I'll see you again next week. (laughs) 